Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Drs. Ed Chu and Ken Miller. I'm Bruce Barber. Dr. Chu is Deputy Director and Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center, and Dr. Miller is a medical oncologist specializing in pain and palliative care, and he serves as the Director of the Connecticut Challenge Survivorship Clinic. If you'd like to join the discussion, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and the phone number is one 234 for YCC. This evening, Ed Chu welcomes Dr. David LaFell. Dr. LaFell is a professor of dermatology and surgery and deputy dean of Yale School of Medicine and CEO of Yale Medical Group, and he joins us in recognition of Skin Cancer Awareness Month. So, so David, why don't we go ahead and, and start off. What is skin cancer? Skin cancer is uh, the most common malignancy in humans. And when people think about skin cancer, they typically think of different types of growths that occur on the skin. There are really three types of skin cancer that we concern ourselves with. One is basal cell cancer, which is a malignancy or a cancerous tumor that arises from cells in the top layer of the skin. The second is squamous cell cancer that also arises from the top layer of the skin. The third type of skin cancer is called melanoma. And although melanoma is a subject unto itself, it is a cancer that arises in the skin from pigment cells called melanocytes. And are are there differences between these different types of skin cancers in terms of the overall severity and prognosis? There are indeed, Eddie. Uh, Basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer are lumped together as non-melanoma skin cancer, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then, of course, melanoma is melanoma, which we'll talk about as well. Non-melanoma skin cancer, fortunately, is easy to treat and, in most cases, readily cured. The most common indication that a person has a non-melanoma skin cancer brewing is a sore that doesn't heal or a spot that bleeds or changes. And typically, where would these kind of sores or lesions be first noticed? Well, one way to help you narrow down uh, your uh, self-monitoring of your skin is to realize that the majority of non-melanoma skin cancers, namely basal cell cancer, and squamous cell cancer, occur on sun-exposed skin. What do I mean by that? Well, the face, the backs of the hands, the legs, in people that work outdoors, men that work outdoors, the shoulders, even the scalp, certainly in bald men, uh, but uh, we see a fair number of skin cancers in women as well. These are the areas that get the most ultraviolet radiation, which is the radiation that comes from the sun. And we know from research done uh, by us at the Yale Cancer Center uh, how ultraviolet radiation actually stimulates both the beginning and the production of skin cancer itself. Now, one question, David, that always... I hear from, you know, our neighbors and friends, you know, for kind of already dark tanned individuals, uh, are they at increased risk for developing skin cancer or does that kind of, does that increased pigment seem to protect from the UV rays? Eddie, that's uh, one of the most common questions that I get as well. I think everyone is looking for some reason why they don't have to protect themselves against the sun. And in fact, the answer is not a simple one. Uh, People that have darker natural pigmentation, people that are of Mediterranean origin, African Americans, Asians, certainly have some natural sun protection that more fair-skinned individuals from Northern Europe, Europe lack. 
Having said that, here in southern Connecticut, it's not unusual to see skin cancer in people that are uh, from Italy, for example, and come in uh, not only heavily tanned, but of course have natural pigmentation, and they're confused, they're bewildered about why they should have a skin cancer because they always thought growing up that their natural pigmentation protected them. In fact, pigmentation, natural pigmentation, provides some SPF or sun protection factor, but it's all relative. You can spend all your time out at the beach or, God forbid, going to a tanning parlor and get enough ultraviolet radiation that your natural protection is overwhelmed. Hmm. So is it, the, is it the, the length of time that one is exposed to sun or kind of the intensity of that exposure? Researchers have spent a great deal of time trying to tease out the answer there. And there's a lot of conflicting data. Some of the facts that I think listeners might be able to latch onto in a useful fashion include the following. The vast majority of sun exposure, we believe, occurs more or less by age 18. The implication there is that careful sun protection in childhood can protect you later in life. Number two, uh, the... Uh, occurrence of a single blistering sunburn, in other words, one bad episode in childhood, uh, appears to double your risk of melanoma later in life. Uh, there's also evidence, for example, that it's the slow accumulation of sun exposure that may be more responsible for basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer. Uh, anecdotally, uh, we see people uh, in June uh, in the office at the Yale Medical Group and examine them, do their full body skin exam, which we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. They go off, enjoy the summer, golf, boating, tennis, and they come back in September. And we can usually tell who's been diligent about sun protection and who hasn't because even the sun exposure during the summer itself in an unprotected fashion seems to turn on some component of that uh, cancerous process in the skin. Hmm. Now, um, a question for you. Is, is there such a thing as a good tan? Well, if you're asking a question in an aesthetic sense, you know, listeners will have to decide whether they think George Hamilton is attractive. <laughs> if you're asking the question about whether a, a tan can be good medically, in other words, provide protection or pre-treat you, so to speak, if you're a college student getting ready to go mm -hmm. down south on spring break, the answer is no. Uh, the tan response is a response to injury. When you cut yourself, your body mounts a very complex repair process. Uh, no one would say that a scar is necessarily attractive, uh, but it is the body's response to an injury. And similarly, pigmentation increase that it results from ultraviolet exposure uh, results uh, from that injury and the body is trying to protect itself in a sense, almost in a literal sense, the body is running for cover. So uh, what recommendations might you give to our listeners out there with respect to the, the use of these tanning salons, tanning parlors? Uh, the, the, the ultimate consideration that listeners increasingly understand and if listeners uh, to this show are finding the things that I'm saying nothing new, then we've achieved our goal. Uh, sadly, uh, I find that whenever we communicate about sun protection, there's always uh, a group of listeners that hear it in new light, and a light bulb goes on, and they say, aha, 
I never understood that before. Now I do. So the use of tanning parlors is one of those issues that gets that aha response. Uh, the public tends to think that uh, the ultraviolet light in tanning parlors somehow is special and not as damaging. But I have to tell you, ultraviolet light from artificial booths is every bit as damaging as natural ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And although there are some regulations in force in Connecticut now, dermatologists would be much happier with stronger regulations limiting the access of tanning booths and certainly making sure that the consumer is aware of the cancer-causing risk that they are exposing themselves to while using tanning parlors. It's quite remarkable. At at the gym that I, I try to get to on an infrequent basis, uh, on the weekends, you see all these young kids who are going into the, the tanning booths, which are there along with the, uh, the fitness equipment, I guess, in preparation for their spring break or summers. Um, and, and they, you know, for them, it's actually a big thing, big deal to actually uh, have, a, have a nice bronze tan. So life is full of paradoxes. On the one hand, people are in the gym making sure that their cardiovascular system is in great shape, that their muscles are bulky or otherwise, and that they uh, appear attractive. The the paradox is that while pursuing uh, that type of appearance, they're actually harming themselves uh, in the not-too-distant future. So, for example, uh, those of us that specialize in skin cancer uh, recognize an increasing number of young people, primarily young women in their 20s, who come in with basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer. And when I was going to medical school and when I was in residency more than 20 years ago, it was virtually unheard of to see a person in that age group coming in with skin cancer. Mm -hmm. Now, sadly, it seems much more common. And when you ask these 20-something women if they've ever used a tanning parlor, in my experience, the answer is almost universally yes. Mm -hmm. So, We have animal experiments. We have epidemiologic experiments, you know, where you look at populations. We have test tube experiences and and data. But our observation about what is happening to young people who use tanning parlors is the most poignant. And so, coming back to your original question about why do young people do this, uh, I think that there are so many alternatives to having that bronze tan that are much safer, such as the spray-on tans, which now have quite a natural appearance, and they actually fool me on a regular basis. Mm. Uh, I find myself upbraiding patients with a tan only for them to roll up their arm and arm sleeve and show me that it's <laughs> an artificial tan. Uh, I think people really need to look at that, whether it's a spray-on tan in the uh, uh, shopping malls or the home application. They are generally safe. And if they help you avoid a tanning parlor, then you'll be in good shape. Okay. I think that, that's terrific advice, David. And so, again, just to maybe to, to review with our listeners, what, what's the typical age group in, in which you'd see skin cancer? You, you, you say you're, we're beginning to see, you're, you're seeing it more frequently, perhaps in, in younger age groups, but what would be the typical age well, distribution? Well, d- data for basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer, unlike data for melanoma, is not tracked as well. But... It's generally the case that skin cancer occurs in the 50s and 60s and beyond. But again, uh, those of us that specialize in skin cancer are seeing it not infrequently uh, in people in their 30s and 40s and even, as I said earlier, people in their 20s. So just because you're a particular age, don't think that you're immune. And the most common thing that happens is people 
uh, see a lesion, a growth on their nose, on their ear, on their cheek, above their lip, and they let it go because basal cell cancer has a sneaky tendency to heal up and then break out again. And so one of the cardinal Mm. signs is a sore that heals up and comes back. You have to have that checked out. And I think that uh, it's, uh, on the one hand, it's important to be suspicious. You don't want to be overly paranoid, uh, but you also don't want to be neglectful because skin cancer that's diagnosed at the earliest stage is really very treatable. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, is there, is there any difference uh, in, in terms of incidence between males and females? It used to be that males uh, had uh, more skin cancer than females, but uh, in practice, we're seeing it really even out, and uh, there are probably many factors for that, lifestyle, uh, social behavior, um, uh, uh, clothing, a whole range of things, Uh, but uh, the incidence based on our experience is really evening out. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, we'd like to remind you to email your questions to canceranswers at yale.edu, or call 1-888-234-4YCC. At this time, we're going to take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about skin cancer with Dr. David LaFell. You know, it's estimated that over 2 million men in the United States are currently living with prostate cancer. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. But major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from this disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, like the one at Yale, to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. Patients enrolled in these trials are given access to experimental medicines not yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration. This has been a Medical Minute, and you'll find more information at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to the WNPR Health Forum from Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Ed Chu, and I'm here in the studio this evening with our special guest expert, Dr. David LaFell, talking about skin cancer, the issues of prevention and treatment, detection, in recognition of May being Skin Cancer Awareness Month. Um, so before the break, we were, we were talking about kind of the incidence of skin cancer and and, and, and kind of what to look for. Maybe for those who may not have uh, caught the, the first part, David, maybe if you could review again, what, what are, what are the, the telltale signs that you typically would tell people to watch out for that might make one suspicious for skin cancer being present? Sure, Eddie. There are really two categories of signs. One relates to melanoma and the other relates to non-melanoma skin cancer, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer, for example. Uh, with respect to non-melanoma skin cancer, The things you want to be alert to include uh, a sore that heals up uh, only to come back again, uh, a sore that bleeds. Sometimes patients will say that they got tired of seeing the blood spots on their pillow. Uh, Sometimes the lesions can be quite small. There's a type of skin cancer, basal cell cancer, that's very hard to diagnose because it doesn't look like much. Often it looks like an old scar, and that's called an infiltrative uh, basal cell cancer, and eventually that too will uh, heap up and may start to bleed or break down. The other type of thing that you have to be aware of, and again, uh, people with fair skin, blue or green eyes, light-colored hair, those are all independent risk factors for an increased uh, occurrence of skin cancer, tend to be aware of of these signs, but it bears repeating. Um, Squamous cell cancer, which is a cousin to basal cell cancer, can appear as a rough red patch or bump on the skin. It tends not to bleed, but rather continue to grow and has a rough texture to it. 
but it can bleed, and I would simply say that any growth on a sun-exposed area, or for that matter, any growth that you discover anywhere that strikes you as concerning should be checked out, and we can talk about what that means in a moment. When it comes to melanoma, uh, which of course is a, a more concerning skin cancer because it can metastasize if not diagnosed and treated promptly, and it can lead to death, sadly, you want to look for any mole that has changed in color, uh, size, uh, symmetry, if it looks like it's become irregular, if it itches or bleeds. Actually, those are later signs. Uh, but uh, probably the most important sign to, to watch for in, in many cases is whether the patient, you the listener, have noticed a change. I have found that patients come in, uh, get a full skin exam, and I don't identify anything of great concern, but they say, Doc, look at this thing over here. And I look at it, and it doesn't concern me especially because it doesn't meet any of the criteria we normally associate with melanoma. But I have a rule, and I teach the residents at the Yale Cancer Center the, the same thing, and that is if a patient demonstrates a concern, even if they're not sure why, about a spot, it comes off, period. Mm -hmm. And more than once, this has proved to be the right thing because you have to remember that the doctor is only seeing you for that snapshot in time in the office. You know your body the best, almost as they say, like the back of your hand. And so it's important. If you're concerned about a spot, insist that it be biopsied. And if the doctor doesn't want to biopsy it, it's not unreasonable to find another physician who will. So David, if, if someone is concerned about a suspicious looking lesion, should they then seek uh, uh, counsel from a, a dermatologist or who should the, the, the first kind of line of defense be? In that setting. The, uh, the question about what uh, type of physician to see really depends on the, the expertise. There are many primary care doctors uh, who have been trained in identifying lesions of concern, and uh, throughout Connecticut, there are primary care doctors that do biopsies. Uh, dermatologists, of course, are specially trained in uh, skin cancer diagnosis and treatment and spend their full residency becoming familiar with the whole range of diseases related to uh, skin cancer. And so uh, it's relatively easy in Connecticut uh, to, uh, to find a dermatologist, uh, but be guided by your primary care doctor. I, I guess the message is, when in doubt, check it out. And, and to kind of uh, um, follow up on the process, once, once it's checked out and presumably a biopsy is done, uh, of the lesion, then what would happen next? Well, the biopsy itself bears some discussion because, excuse me, for some people, the thought of having a biopsy is sufficient to scare them off. Mm -hmm. And denial and fear are the two human emotions, very human emotions, that keep people from getting into the doctor and getting things checked out that need to be evaluated. So what I'm going to tell you now is information that will make you very comfortable about the idea of having a biopsy. It's no big deal. Uh, the site is numbed up with a little bit of lidocaine in the office, and then the specimen is either shaved off or punched off uh, very quickly, and you go home with a Band-Aid. Some doctors might put a little stitch in, but by and large, it's a very simple, straightforward procedure that, when it comes to melanoma, for example, can be life-saving. Mm -hmm. and, and once the diagnosis of, say, non-melanoma skin cancer is made, uh, what are the different treatment options? Well, th there are several uh, options, and they depend on uh, the location of the uh, skin cancer, what it looks like under the microscope, and what techniques are available to the dermatologist or other physician. Uh, 
the uh, simplest type of skin cancer, a superficial basal cell cancer, can actually be scraped off in the office. However, other skin cancers, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancers that occur on the face, uh, near the eye, in the central facial region, on the ear, in any difficult to treat area, any skin cancer that is recurrent, any skin cancer that poses a treatment challenge would best be treated, in my opinion, by the Mohs microscopic surgery technique. And this is an office-based technique performed by specially trained physicians who have done a fellowship in this technique where the skin cancer is removed with as little tissue as possible so that we preserve as much of the important facial skin or other as possible. It's mapped and immediately tested under the microscope. The Mohs surgeon then goes back and removes additional skin as needed until the cancer is completely removed. This technique has two real advantages. Number one, there's a very high cure rate, probably the highest cure rate. And number two, as little normal tissue is removed as possible so one gets the optimum cosmetic result. Now remember, this Mohs surgery technique is very specialized and is not needed for every skin cancer. In fact, I would say the majority of skin cancers uh, are easily treated by your doctor in the office using the scraping technique or the traditional surgical method where it's numbed up and excised and, and stitched up. However, uh, in certain very specific conditions, which you can discuss with your doctor, a consultation with someone specializing in Mohs surgery may be indicated. Now, once uh, surgical removal has been done, is there anything else that, that uh, needs to be um uh, recommended to the patient or just close follow-up at that point? Well, close follow-up is important, not so much to monitor that particular skin cancer, uh, but to monitor for the risk of others. So, for example, if you've had a basal cell cancer on your face, you have a 40% chance of getting another one somewhere else on the face in fi within five years. So I recommend that people that have had a skin cancer or are at high risk for skin cancer should have a full-body skin exam once a year, head to toe, and then uh, it also once a year at least should be evaluated by their dermatologist or other physician uh, with respect to their sun-exposed areas. You know, the other thing that I neglected to mention with respect to treatment is uh, depending on the skin cancer, there are some non-surgical approaches. One mm -hmm. of them is the use of Aldara. That's the brand name for a drug called Amiquimod, which is a remarkable compound. You know, it was originally designed as a cream to treat warts. Hmm. In fact, it works so well with skin cancer that over the past several years, it's been approved for that purpose. Uh, you should not use it yourself. It's a prescription item, and it needs to be administered under the direction of your doctor, but that can be quite effective. Just uh, yesterday, I had a patient with a relatively large skin cancer on his forehead, and because of the nature of it under the microscope and other factors, I've decided to treat him uh, with this cream, and he's getting a very good response, and the odds are he's not going to even need surgery uh, for this. The other thing that listeners will hear about is something called photodynamic therapy. And photodynamic therapy has been around for a long time in different manifestations. And basically, in uh, photodynamic therapy, a solution is applied to the skin. And uh, one waits for an hour, two hours, in some cases much longer. And it then gets activated by the application of light. At the Yale Cancer Center, we use a, a laser light to stimulate the solution, which then actually uh, destroys the cancer cells. And this is also, in a sense, a non-surgical approach, and it tends to be effective in certain specific precancerous situations. Hmm. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Now, are there any um, approaches, 
that can be used to kind of prevent the recurrence of uh, additional basal squamous cell cancers? The single most important strategy to prevent uh, the development of additional skin cancers is sun protection. And when we talk about sun protection, we're not talking about crawling under a rock. We're not talking about uh, changing your lifestyle so dramatically that you don't enjoy living anymore. What we're talking about is a common sense approach to minimize the amount of ultraviolet radiation exposure that you get. You have to remember that ultraviolet radiation is an EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, designated carcinogen. So it's important to make sure that you minimize your exposure to it and, and do it in the following way. Number one, between 10 and 4, avoid direct sunlight as much as possible. If you like to walk or bike, do it before 10, do it after 4. Number two, wear a sunscreen on a regular basis with a sun protection factor of 30 or higher, and that sunscreen should be labeled as broad spectrum, meaning that it's providing protection against both ultraviolet B rays and ultraviolet A rays. Wear a brimmed hat. I can't tell you the number of patients that come in with a baseball cap that they've worn their whole life presenting with a skin cancer on their ear. Uh, the reality is that a baseball cap doesn't provide as much protection as a brimmed hat with a two-inch brim. And, you know, the market has responded. Uh, there are stylish hats now, and I think patients that have found one right for them are providing additional protection against the sun in that fashion. Good. I think that, that's very, very uh, helpful advice. And, and, again, just to kind of re reiterate, I know when I go to the, uh, the drugstore, you know, and you look at the, uh, the sun-blocking agents, you've got... 10, 15, 30, 50. So again, your recommendation would be anything 30 and above? Well, and, and what does that actually mean, actually, that number? It, it's uh, very important to take a minute to understand this, to be, to be an educated consumer in this regard, uh, because there is a very wide array of products, and it can really be paralyzing when you find yourself standing there trying to figure out what you should buy. So I'm going to give you some tips. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Number one, sun protection factor, SPF, is an indication of how much that particular product protects you from ultraviolet B or burning rays. So if the sun protection factor is 15 and you normally burn after 20 minutes in the sun, theoretically an SPF of 15 will allow you to be out in the sun for 15 times 20 or 300 minutes before you burn. In fact, it's largely theoretical because it depends on so many other factors, but it's a rough guide. At an SPF of 30, you're blocking out about 96% of the ultraviolet B rays, so it's not necessarily true that the higher the number, the more proportional protection you're getting. In fact, it's not true at all. With respect to ultraviolet A rays, it's important to make sure that your product has at least one of the following ingredients. Number one, avobenzone, also known as seven, Parsol 1789, is the only FDA-approved UVA protectant in sunscreen. The other ingredient that provides a full block is uh, zinc oxide, and there are many formulations now that have zinc oxide uh, included in a very uh, effective fashion and don't make you look like a white clown face. Uh, titanium dioxide also provides some uh, broad-spectrum protection. So these are the ingredients you want to look for if you find yourself paralyzed in front of the uh, sunscreen aisle. Okay, well, I think uh, that, that's really terrific uh, advice for our listeners out there. It, it's amazing, actually, how quickly the time has gone by. Unfortunately, we didn't really get a chance to talk about all the great research that's going on, but hopefully at a future show we'll be able to maybe uh, 
uh, focus in a little bit more on the research. So uh, on behalf of Yale Cancer Center Answers, David, thank you so much for joining us this evening for the show. Thank you for having me. Until next week, this is Dr. Ed Chu from the Yale Cancer Center wishing you a safe and healthy week. If you have questions, comments, or would like to subscribe to our podcast, go to YaleCancerCenter.org, where you'll also find transcripts of past broadcasts in written form. Next week, you'll learn about cancers of the head and neck.